uh, executed by Emperor Nero, who was a very evil man. And so, in one sense, we could say that Titus is uh, one of the last writings that we have of the Apostle Paul. The very last of 2 Timothy. But this is the next to the last. Which means that we have Paul's most fully developed thoughts regarding the gospel, regarding the church. So these are some of his, his final words. Uh, Titus is one of three pastoral epistles. Somebody called 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus pastoral epistles in the early 1800s, and that title is stuck all these years. And so we have three pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And they are in that order in our Bible for a reason. I'll give somebody a quarter. Quarter, if you can tell me why there's a silver dollar here. So man just raised that price, so I hear too. <laughs> if you can tell me why 1 Timothy comes second, first, 2 Timothy, and then Titus. Alphabetical? Good guess, but no cigar. <laughs> based on length. 1 Timothy is the longest book, it comes first, and Titus is the shortest book of the pastoral epistles, and it's put in their last. See, so you always get good information in this place. Both Timothy and Titus are interim pastors. Paul has planted some churches, and uh, he then moves on, and he leaves Timothy behind in Ephesus, to get things in order in that church, and he leaves Titus behind on the island of Crete to put things in order in that church. So if you're ready, we're going to do verse by verse through Titus, and I'm going to cover the salutation today, maybe just touch upon one other verse. And I'll try to fill in the gaps, the background as we go along. Okay? You ready? Okay. So... I want you to notice that there's two names mentioned. Actually, there's three formal names mentioned. There's Paul in verse 1. You see that? There's Titus in verse 2. And then in verse 5, you see the word Crete. So there are two people mentioned. Paul, he's the writer. Titus, he's the recipient of the letter. And then Titus is located in Crete. Well, let's look at Paul. And let's discover how he identifies himself. Verses 1, 2, and 3 in the Greek New Testament uh, make up one single verse. And it's a very complicated verse. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read verses 1, 2, and 3, and then I'm going to try to break it down for you. And we'll put it in little chunks so we can see what Paul's trying to say. So let's just read verses 1, 2, and 3. Paul, a bondservant of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ, some translations say Christ Jesus, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me, according to the commandment of God our Savior. Now notice, when we look at this salutation, notice how Paul identifies himself. First of all, he identifies himself as a bondservant, or more literally, a slave of God. He belongs to God. 
Now, what makes that so unusual? This is the only time Paul ever calls himself a slave of God. He usually opens it up, you know, an apostle and a servant of Jesus Christ, right? But this time he starts off with Paul, a slave of God. Why in the world does he do that? Why does he break with this pattern? Well, this is a title that was very familiar in the Old Testament. <coughs> Moses was called by that title, slave of God. Joshua was called by that title, slave of God. Jeremiah was called by that title, slave of God. And many other prophets in the Old Testament who spoke on behalf of God. So what Paul is doing is he's putting himself in line with a succession of prophets by calling himself a servant or a slave of God. Only he is God's spokesman for a new age. And he does that for a reason. In Crete, there are people that are opposing Paul and Titus and the church of God. And notice who these people are. In verse 10, they are described. This is where I'm going to fill in a couple of the blanks for you. It says, there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers. Now watch this. Especially those who are of the what? Circumcision. Jews. There are Jewish opponents in the church or in the city of Crete, and we believe that some of them probably are in neighboring synagogues. And if Paul just would have said, a servant of Jesus Christ, they would say, well, we don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. What's that to us? So what? guess what Paul does? He says, well, I'm a servant of God, just like Moses and Jeremiah. I am God's prophet for this age. And so I think what's happening here is that Paul is establishing his authority. He wants to be heard. And so this is what he calls himself. He is God's agent. Now, second of all, he says, and, you see that in verse 1? Which means, and furthermore, not only that, he says, I am an apostle, a messenger, an envoy of Jesus Messiah. Of Jesus Messiah. So, he's establishing his authority. He has a message that will that's authoritative for the Jews, the Jewish opponents. He has a message that is authoritative for the Christians. He is an agent of God. He is an agent of Jesus Christ to whom the church believes in. Does that make sense to you? A message for the Jews and a message for the church. Now look at his mission. Okay. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ, servant of God, according to the faith of God's elect. A better translation would be for the faith or to promote the faith of God's Elect. And notice how he describes God's people. God's what? Elect. That's an Old Testament title, which referred to God's chosen people, the Jews, but now he's also applying it to Gentile believers. Gentile believers, members of the church, are also God's elect, and his ministry is to promote or further their faith, to produce faith in them. It's uh, somewhat of an evangelistic ministry. Uh, but that's not all. Look what else he says. And to the acknowledgement of the truth. Uh, he's not only trying to promote their faith, but he's trying to get them to acknowledge 
the truth. And that phrase, the truth, many times in Paul's writings refers to the gospel. It's a faith that has to be based on the true gospel. And since Paul is God's authorized spokesperson, if your understanding of the gospel doesn't match Paul's understanding of the gospel, guess who's wrong? You are. Because he is God's agent. He is Christ's agent. And he is speaking the truth. Now these people of the circumcision, down in verse 10 that we saw, they have a different gospel. They're saying, well, we understand you believe Jesus is the Messiah, but you have to be circumcised, you have to keep the Jewish law in order to be fully part of God's family. And Paul says, no, that is not the case. His gospel is a little different than their gospel. He gives the authentic gospel. And then he describes the results of this gospel right at the end of verse 1. Which accords or leads to godliness. Faith in the true gospel leads to godliness. It results in godly behavior. It affects your everyday life. And there's so many people who say, I believe, I believe, but you don't see any evidence of that belief. It leads, faith in the true gospel leads to godliness or a godly life. There must be some evidence that you are putting your faith in the real gospel. That your faith is based on the real gospel. There should be results. There should be fruit. If you took a recipe from maybe some famous chef, you thought you had the recipe from the chef for, let's say, bread pudding and whatever you back, just put on it, bourbon sauce or whatever you do. I don't know what you do. But, and uh, you made the bread pudding and the sauce, and it didn't taste the same as the famous chef's. Well, something's wrong there, isn't it? I guess you probably had the wrong recipe. Some of these chefs always leave out just a little bit of their recipe so you can't duplicate it. You would have to have the evidence that you were following the same recipe from the chef is the end result. In other words, the taste is in what? It's in the pudding. Right recipe results in right results. There has to be evidence. There's evidence if you're a real believer. Remember that commercial? I forget what it was. Burger King or one of them. And the old lady, she gets up and she says, Where's the beef? You know, they, they advertised, they made a claim that this was the best burger in the world, but when she looked, all she saw was lettuce and tomatoes and pickles and onions, and then this little patty, and she goes, where's the beef? There has to be proof. Your, your claim has to result in proof. There has to be evidence. You just can't say, I believe. Well, let me see the evidence of your belief. And we're going to discover that the evidence of true belief Genuine belief is good works. And you're going to see this very clearly in a few moments. So we need to be evaluating our lives on a day-by-day -day basis. Now look at the basis for this gospel. Look at verse 2. In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, 
Watch this. This is the basis for the gospel and its results. A God who cannot lie promised before time began. We know that this is the true gospel because it's based on a promise of God. When did he promise it? What does it say there? He promised it when? Before time began. Eternal life is based on an eternal promise. You see that? This gospel message that Paul's preaching isn't some later add-on afterthought type message. It's not that God came up with Judaism and then later on he said, ah, guess what, now we're going to add the gospel to it. Jesus is going to die and rise and be raised. And if you believe on him, you're saved. And he just added a, no, this is the promise that God made when? God's plan has always been that Christ would die and the Gentiles would come in as part of God's elect. This gospel was settled before the world began. It's not an afterthought. This was always God's plan. And look at the validity of that gospel. Look what it says. In hope of eternal life which God promised before time began. But look how it describes God. A God who cannot what? Lie. The gospel is truth because it's based on a God who is true. A God who cannot lie. Now those opponents. Remember those opponents in verse 10? Look how they are described. Just two verses later in verse uh, 12. One of them, a prophet of their own, said this. Christians are always what? They're liars. But guess what God is? God cannot lie. Now, who would you like to believe? Would you like to believe Paul's gospel? Based on a promise, eternal life based on an eternal promise from a God who cannot lie. Or would you rather listen to the opponents of the gospel who are all liars? In fact, he says they're evil beasts and they're lazy gluttons. So, Paul is establishing his authority and he is undermining the authority of these opponents. Does that make sense to you? I think so. And then you have that phrase, in hope. Do you see that in verse 2? That uh, speaks of a future resurrection. It's an eternal life that will, will be complete in the resurrection when Christ returns. So, based on this eternal promise made before the world began, validated by a God who cannot lie, see, we have hope that this salvation will be complete. And it's a hope that's not a hope-so type of a hope, but it's a full confidence in a God who cannot lie. So, this is what Paul is promising. Very interesting. When you look at the salutation, isn't it totally different than any of the other salutations you see in Paul's letter? Doesn't he usually say, I thank my God for you, and he gives, in, gives, gives some of these flowery things about the church that he's writing to? You don't see any of that. He just jumps right in done establishing, his, establishing the truthfulness of the gospel. Now look at the next word in verse 3. You see that? But. Yeah? But. Or and. You see that? So, but. What about that gospel? But. God, meaning God, has in due time manifested His Word. you see that? When did He promise it? Before time began, when did He manifest it? What's it say? In due time. At a certain point in history, God made this message clear. A moment of time of His own choosing. Now watch verse 3 very carefully. 
He has in due time manifested his word, meaning the gospel. Watch this. Through what? Through preaching. Through preaching. And, and that which is preached. In other words, through a preacher who delivers the full impact of God's message, the gospel. So what we have is this. In time past, before time actually began, God made a promise. Way back then. In due time, he revealed the truth of that gospel, didn't he? And what about between those times? It was a mystery, wasn't it? It was hidden. Many of the Old Testament prophets talked about a Messiah or a deliverer who would come, but they didn't have all the details. A lot of the details were fuzzy. But guess what? God made everything very clear in due time through the preaching. That's why preaching is very important. And then look what else he says there. Through preaching, oh, I like this, which was committed to who? Me. Me. Paul is God's spokesman for the new age. It's through Paul that God reveals that not only can Jews be saved, but Gentiles can be saved and are, can be part of God's elect people. He, in due time, he manifests his word through preaching, which was commanded to me. When was Paul commanded to preach? Right on the Damascus Road. God knocked him down. Jesus knocked him down and called him at the same time. Saved and called at the same time. And he said, you are to take the gospel, not only the Jews, but you will be speaking to Gentiles and kings with the gospel. Boy, that was a new concept, that Gentiles would get the gospel. So Paul, it says, according to the command, or the demand of God, see that? Paul was, had a divine commission. He has a mission, and it's a divine commission. Verse 3 says, according to the command of God. He has no other option but to do it. And he calls God our Savior. You see that? Not only a Savior to the Jews, but also a Savior to the Gentiles. Not only his Savior, but Titus' Savior, which you're going to see is important in a moment. Okay. Now, this is why Paul was the initial spokesperson to the Gentiles. God revealed him. Guess what? Now I get up and I preach. And when I do it, I preach that same message that Paul preached. And I'm carrying on that tradition. I could say of myself, Alan Street, a slave of God, an envoy of Messiah Jesus. And every time I got up and speak, I declare this gospel that God promised before time began, and it broke in time, first of all, through the apostles. That word preaching there is the word kerygma. It's an interesting word. That's the message that's preached. The person who preached the word is called in Greek a kerux. K-U-E-R-U-X. And on this ring I've got, this is a ring from teaching at Criswell College for 10 years. I've got the word, I could design my own ring. There's certain things that came on the ring and other things that you could put on there. They said, what do you want to put on there? And they said, I want the word carrots put on there. Which literally means town crier. 
town crier. One who speaks on behalf of the king. Who says, hear ye, hear ye. Good news from the king. And he gets everyone's attention. And when he speaks, he speaks with the full authority of the king behind him. Because he's delivering the king's message. And they say, what does that mean? And then he explains the implications and the meaning of that message. I put that on that ring. Because when I preach, every time I look down at that ring, I realize that I have a responsibility before God to give you the truth. And my guest, Dwight A. Moody, I don't know, are you related to Dwight L. Moody? You are related to Dwight L. Moody? Professor of homiletics, and he started something called the Academy of Preachers. And what he's done, he got a Lilly grant, and he started an organization that gave young people, teenagers and in their 20s, a venue where they could preach the gospel. And next year, it's been going on for a few years, next year the National Convention is going to be in Dallas. And there'll be students from all over the United States who come there who will be displaying their God-given ability to preach the gospel. And you can get to go. You can sponsor them even. And it's going to be at the Holiday Inn right there at Mockingbird and at Howland Park United Methodist Church. And that's the venues. And you'll see young men. You'll see girls who believe that they've been called to preach. This is not going to be Baptist. It's Nazarene. It's Methodist. It's African Methodist Episcopal Church. It's all churches. Just and he, All he does is he steps back and says, I'm going to give you a venue to preach. And these will be the future Christian leaders in the United States in 20 years. And they will have made connections with each other. And they will have developed friendships with each other that will go on for another generation or two. And these young people will eventually be in pulpits and in teaching positions at esteemed universities and influential churches and they will, they will know each other and they will have resources at their disposal that they wouldn't have had had they gone this thing alone. And so I want you to you know, meet Dwight Moody after class. Come out and talk to him. He's a great guy. And uh, he has a great ministry. The Academy of Preachers. And you'll definitely want to go there. We'll have a few students from Criswell College who will be preaching. And we'll find out how good they really are. We'll find out how good their homiletics professor is. Their preaching professor. <clears throat> how much he doesn't know. <laughs> so anyway, does that make sense? That's what Paul's trying to do. See, I've said it's a really convoluted sentence, isn't it? But I think we've gotten through it. Now let's look at the recipient. Verse 4. The Titus. The Titus. Now look how he describes Titus. A true son in our common faith. A genuine son. The real McCoy. He's a true son in the faith because his faith is in the true gospel. That Paul has preached. That comes from God who cannot lie. A genuine believer. Notice it's a common gospel, a common faith. There's only one faith. One faith, one Lord, one baptism. You've heard that statement out of Ephesians. Now what do we know about Titus? Well, the first thing we know about him is he's Gentile. Wow. That's something. Paul puts Timothy over in Ephesus. 
He's half Jew and half Gentile. He puts Titus as pastor, interim pastor here in Crete. And he's Gentile. And he's having problems from these Judaizers, these people of the circumcision. He's a Gentile. Now, you all know this. We talked about it when we were in Colossians a little bit. The Judaizers were always trying to get the Gentile converts to be circumcised and keep the law in order to be considered fully established people of God. Paul was always opposed to that. You know that. And finally, they had a great big summit conference in Jerusalem. Do you remember that? Do Gentiles have to keep the law in order to be considered God's people? And what did they decide in Jerusalem? No, Gentiles are fully God's people if they trust in Jesus as the Messiah. When Paul goes to Jerusalem to argue the case that Gentiles do not have to keep the law, he takes Titus with him as exhibit A of a genuine believer. And I wanted to show this to you. It's the only time we'll move away from this passage. Look over at Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. And he mentions this. And it's very interesting. And that's the only reason I want to show this to you. I'm just going left in your Bible. Past Colossians. And when you get to Galatians, go to chapter 2. And look at verse 1. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 1. He says, then after 14 years, remember he was, on the, he was away for 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. And I also took Titus with me. Do you see that? I took Titus with me. This is where they're going to determine whether Gentiles have to keep the law. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately with those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Paul does a little bit behind the scenes work. And then he says this. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, being a Gentile, was compelled to be circumcised. When they saw Titus and they saw his genuine faith, they said, no, sir, he doesn't have to be circumcised. He's as fully a person of God as we Jewish believers are. So that's Titus. Titus is a Gentile. And he has been found faithful by not only Paul and God, but also the church at Jerusalem, the Council of Jerusalem. He's also part of Paul's preaching team, and he's one of Paul's troubleshooters. Uh, when they're having problems in that troubled Corinthian church, Paul writes a second letter to them, and it's Titus that delivers it and explains what Paul wants done in that church. And when Paul wants an offering taken, he sends Titus to take the offering from the church at Corinth, which will then be sent to the Jerusalem church, who's having some problems. It's like we we just we, we need an off we need an offering for Eric Williams. Who did we choose? We chose Titus to take that offering. Wellington Hughes. So he was like Titus. He took that offering. What does that mean? That means Wellington was trusted. That means Titus was trusted. He is a trusted disciple of Paul. Now he's called a true son in the faith. We have no evidence that he was led to Christ by Paul, but he could have been. In the book of Acts, he's not even mentioned, although if you read between the lines, you can find him there. 
So this, these are his assignments. He's Paul's troubleshooter. And now guess what? Now he has another assignment. And look what it says in verse 5. For this reason, Titus, I left you in Crete. What reason? Here it is. That you should set in order the things that are lacking. You see that? This is a church that has some problems and they need some organization. And that you appoint elders in every city as I have commanded you. So he's going to set things in order. And he's doing it in Crete. Now what do we know about Crete? Well, Crete's an island. It's an island right in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. It's 165 miles long from east to west. And it's 35 miles wide. There's a lot of cities on that island. And a lot of seaports. And Paul and Titus evidently have made a, taken a mission trip there. And they have led people to Christ. And they have planted churches. Now Paul has gone on to another assignment. And he leaves Titus behind to get things in order that are lacking. So, uh, he's going to be Paul's troubleshooter. Now let me ask you a question. Why do you think Paul has to write this to him? Remember, I always told you to ask those kinds of questions. Look, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things which are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Oh, what's happening here? Titus has been in Crete for a while, and guess what? He's not doing it, is he? He's, he's, uh, he's, not handling the assignment. So Paul has to write him a letter. So, well, you need to get to it, buddy. I want you to set things in order, and that's going to involve rebuking, by the way, these opponents. And we see that up in uh, verse 13. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. Look at that. Rebuke them sharply. Uh, one of the things he has to do is he has to stand up to the opposers, to the to the. Judaizers and rebuke them. That's going to be hard. And he's going to have to appoint elders. And once he appoints the elders, then the elders will start rebuking the opponents. He won't have to do it alone. And you see that in verse 9 where it says, Holding fast the faithful word as he's been taught that he might be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. That is an elder. Once the elder is chosen and the elders are chosen, he will exhort and convict. And uh, convict those who are contradictors. So uh, the letter is not just written to Titus and for Titus. It's also giving instruction to the elders what they're to do once they're appointed. And so this is a letter that's written to the church. And I'll show you how we know that. If you look at the very last verse of chapter 3, look what it says. Look what Paul says. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Now look at this last phrase, verse 15. Grace be to what? You all. You see that? He's writing that to the entire church. That's a you that's in the portal. He's not only writing to Titus, he's writing to the church. And so this becomes somewhat of a church manual how to conduct church. And once Titus gets things in order, he's going to be replaced. He's going to get out of here. This is only an interim job for him. You say, how do you know that? Well, look at verse 12 of chapter 3. 
when I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, look, here's what I want you to do. When they arrive, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis. Do you see that? Once they arrive, you leave and come to where I am. I need you here. So this is an interim job. It's a temporary assignment. I want to show you one other thing before we close out. I want to show you the theme of the book of Titus. Okay. I'm convinced that the theme of this letter is good works. That's the evidence that we should expect when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and we adopt the true gospel. Watch the number of times the word good works or works is used. Look at chapter 1 and verse 16. They profess to know God, but in works they deny Him. It's not enough to make a profession. What about the works? Being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified. Look at this. For every good work. You see that? That's chapter 1. Look down in verse 7 of chapter 2. All things showing yourself to be a pattern of what? Good works. Do you see that? Look down at verse 14. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify himself for himself, his own special people, zealous for what? See, that's what he's redeemed us for. He's redeemed, redeemed us to be what? Zealous for good works. Now in chapter 3. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities to obey and be ready for what? Every good work. You see that? Look down at verse 8. This is a faithful saying. And these things I want you, want you to affirm constantly. That those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain what? Look down at verse 14. And let our people also learn to what? Maintain good works to meet urgent needs. Starts defining what good works are. Meet urgent needs that they may not be what? Unfruitful. There must be fruit in the life of those who are called Christians. Now let's just finish up verse 4 as a salutation, and this is where we'll close for this week. He says, To Titus, a true son, a genuine son, in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. This is all Roman language. Paul is writing to a Gentile man, Titus. Caesar in the Roman Empire is the Savior. That word Savior is not a Christian word. It's a word that Paul borrows from Caesar. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Savior. And Caesar represents Jupiter. The Father of all gods. And all grace, all the benefits, all compassion. Uh, 
All peace flows down from Jupiter, the Father God, through his earthly representative, Caesar, the Savior, unto the masses of the people. And Paul uses that same language. And what he says here is the benefits and the, the compassion and the peace that we desire uh, doesn't come from the Roman government. It doesn't come from the empire. It all comes down and flows down from God the Father, our Father, and not Caesar is Lord, but Jesus is Lord, who is Messiah, our Savior. And so this is the blessing that Paul gives Titus. He says, don't look to the empire to meet your needs. Look to God the Father and Jesus Christ to meet your needs. Now, just remember this one thing as we close. About two years after he writes this letter, Paul dies at the hand of Nero. That means this letter outlives Paul. These instructions outlive the man who writes them. And they will serve as instructions for this church and its organization for years to come. And guess what? This Sunday, in 2014, we're reading the same instructions. And they are instructions that we are to heed and apply in our lives, in our church. They fall upon us to obey them. Let me leave you with a question. Almost everyone in this room claims to be a Christian. You've made a profession of faith, either to family members or in front of a church or somewhere. You profess that, or at least in your heart you profess it. You profess it by being here. Is there evidence that you're a genuine, a true believer? Do we see good deeds, good works in our lives? Or are we just boasting? And there's no evidence. If someone looked at you, would they say, where's the meat? Where's the evidence? Where's the evidence that matches the claim? See, in the weeks ahead, we're going to be dealing with this good works thing. And so a good time this week, it's, it's a good time this week just to start and say, is there evidence in my life? Or how can I shore up my faith? Is there ways that I can, are there deeds, good deeds that I can do this week uh, that are motivated by my love for Christ? And then I want to leave you with a word of encouragement. You were on God's mind before time even began. Can you believe that? He had you in mind when he sent his son and planned his son's death on the cross and his resurrection and how he was going to draw out a company of people for his own. He had you on his mind when he called the Apostle Paul to the Damascus Road to preach the gospel to Gentiles. I'd imagine almost all of us are Gentiles in this room. And then Paul died, and guess what? Somebody else picked up the torch and preached that gospel. And then someone else. And there's been a succession all the way down right now to 2014. And somewhere between Paul's preaching and 2014, you heard the gospel. And you claimed it as your own. And for you, salvation occurred in the moment. But guess what? God had you on his mind even before time began. I'm going to leave you with that thought.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a new book, a letter that excites us. And when we just look at it, see the layout of Paul's thinking, how logical he is. He develops a plan in this letter to establish his authority. In. He tries to get Titus on the ball doing what he's called to do. And Lord, when we read this letter, help us to read it as a message to us as well. Many of us need to get on the ball. Many of us need to be encouraged. So Lord, as we go through this letter week after week, may we be strengthened in the faith and may we be proven at the end. We call true sons and daughters in the faith. In Christ's name.